Thank you for joining us today. This is Clint Byers, lead pastor of Forward Church. I pray this message blesses and encourages you. I hope it inspires transformative grace in your heart and establishes you even deeper in your new covenant identity in Christ. Now take a deep breath, become aware of God's spirit within you, and enjoy the message. I feel like the Lord has put it on my heart to just pray and just open up our expectation to agree with the Holy Spirit to find people in this community that are looking for um, a place that will lift, build people up in their identity in Christ, you know, not teach mixture, not teach that you got a little bit of sin nature still left in you, but you are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You are fully complete in him, in your spirit. And we are just seeking to renew our mind to live it out outwardly in our lives. And, uh, you know, it's uh, a lot of people are, are waking up to the gospel, to realizing and recognizing that, man, the work actually is finished. Christ actually is a sufficient atonement for everything and all that will ever happen in my life. And it, you know, and, and it, but it, it takes a while to get your mind kind of wrapped around the ideas. It takes your mind to, for your heart, it takes your heart a little while to kind of really be receptive to the idea that Christ actually is my righteousness. Christ in me actually changes the kind of being that I am. I am actually 100% acceptable to God because Christ is in me and I'm in him. Now, and then some people will say, well, are you saying that you never sin? Well, here's the problem, you self-righteous thing. I have identified the problem. You think righteousness is related to performance, and it's not. Righteousness is a gift that's given to you in the finished work of Christ. Now, does that mean you should continue in sin? No. Not just no, but God forbid. Y'all thought y'all were thinking something else. Y'all had to repent for it. Like Romans 6, you know. I feel like we need a neon sign that when we start talking about being free from the law, being righteous in Christ, we just flick the switch and Romans 6 starts blinking back there. Beep, beep, beep. No. Not, you know. Anyway. So my, my prayer is that you bear much fruit. That you bear, and the only way that you bear fruit is by abiding in Him. Amen? So, that, so that's, that's what I want the effect of this ministry to be in your life, is that it compels you to abide in Him. And whatever it takes for you to abide in Him, meaning that you live in Him, that you yield to Him, that you, be, that you engage fully in this transformational relationship with him, to outwardly bear, to make evident what he's already done inwardly, to make evident outwardly what he's already accomplished in you through Christ. And that actually is the source of life now, that you would learn how to live from that life of Christ in you, this grace that empowers you and strengthens you. So that's what I pray. I pray that you bear much fruit as you allow Christ's grace to live through you. So, and we were, we were talking about it, um, Blake and I were talking about it yesterday, you know, that the difference between 
works and expectations, good works, dead works, which is really what I want to talk about today is the difference between good works and dead works. Because a lot of times people will kind of start to wake up to this idea of the finished work, which really is just the gospel from a new covenant perspective, filtering everything through who Jesus is and what Jesus has accomplished. But sometimes people will start to wake up to that idea and because they've been raised in a, maybe a legalistic environment or maybe a hyper-charismatic environment, sometimes settle right into a healthy place and an understanding of the gospel. But a lot of times there's an overcorrection. So in other words, there's a leaving of legalism and an overcorrection back over into the ditch of permissiveness. Or there's lots of pitfalls in, in, in unhealthy grace or an unhealthy understanding of grace. There's a lot of pitfalls over there. There's this, you know, there's universalism that's based on Jesus, you know, the idea, well, Jesus came to save everybody and he did. Therefore, everybody's saved, you know, so you, you swing away into this. And because so many people have been raised to evaluate their efforts and their works as the evidence of your salvation. Now, it's the fruit of your salvation but it's not the evidence of your salvation. In other words, the way that you know that you are saved is not from your works. The way that you know that you are saved is the fact that you have placed your faith in the atoning work of Christ for you. That's how you know. There's only one way to be saved, and it's by grace through faith in Christ, not of works. You don't get to boast about your works. But, but there, it, and it's a subtle difference because there's a way of thinking that will say, uh, you get saved when God wants you to be saved. Will you bring me down just a hair? Hear a little bit of ringing. That you get saved when God wants you to get saved. He'll give you some faith to get saved. And then if he doesn't want you to be saved, then he won't give you the faith to be saved, and you're just doomed to hell. Now, that's a very extreme version of this particular systematic theology. Some of you were raised in that. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you... You're thinking, well, that's kind of weird. Praise God that you didn't get raised in that stuff, you know. But in that theology, it's very common to say, focus on like James 2. James 2 is a big chapter on works and salvation, works and evidence of fruit and all this. You got John 14, 15, which talks about abiding in him, abiding in the vine. And then you got James 2, that, which focuses heavy on the, the outcropping of your faith. James basically says, well, you know, you guys are giving preferential treatment to people in your church, and what good is it to, that you're preferring these people and doing everything for them, but all these people over here, you just say, well, we'll pray for you, or, you know, I have faith for you, but you're not doing anything for them. Essentially, that, that's the indictment that James is actually bringing out in James 2, is that the church is being... Um, what's the term, I guess bigoted in the way that they're treating people, preferring people, doing things for these people, but not doing anything for them. And, and James's indictment toward the church is, what about these people? And, you know, you, you say that you love these people. You say that you have faith, but you're doing everything for them and nothing for them. You know, show me, you show me your faith, I'll show you my works. I'll show you my faith by my works, you know. And, and it gets misconstrued as if James is teaching that you are saved eternally from your works. And then it gets backed into the theology that the way that you know that you're saved is if you have the associated works. 
You, have you ever been? You ever been in that environment? Have you ever felt like, wait a minute, I'm not sure that I'm saved because I'm not doing good works or I'm not doing enough good works. Honestly, raise your hand if you've ever been in that kind. Yeah, you've ever questioned your salvation and maybe it's not, well, I'm not doing enough good. Maybe it's, golly, I'm not sure a saved person would do what I did last night. You know what I mean? I mean, honestly, you think, well, gosh, maybe I'm not saved. Maybe I'm actually not saved because of, a saved person wouldn't do that. You're self-righteous. You are self-righteous in that you think your salvation, your acceptance with God is based on your performance. Now, does that mean you should just continue in sin? Of course not. We're, 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 we're building a foundation. You're building something. You've got to have the foundation in place before you start building. You don't get to have multiple foundations. The foundation is salvation by grace through faith. Alone, and that is it. However, you should have fruit. But let's not confuse fruit with works, and let's not confuse dead works with good works. So I kind of want to sort all that out um, and and talk a little bit about this today. So there's a ton of scripture we're putting Eric to work back there today. I'm thankful for you, Eric. Get ready for your fingers to do the walking on the computer back there. Uh, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm actually going to have you follow me, um, so if you would do that. We're going to start in Hebrews 4.10. I love this passage because it's such a paradox. For he who has entered his rest, God's rest, has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Amen. You are to cease from your works. Are you with me? And I'm going to go slow here because I want to give you time to think about it. I want to give you time to kind of sort some things out with what you believe, especially the expectations that you have on yourself. Especially those expectations that are related to your failures and those areas where you think you're not doing enough. I want to I remove the yoke of bondage. I want to remove the yoke of legalism. I want to remove the yoke of obligation. I want to remove the, the expectation that I have to do something for God, that I have to live this way. No. If you ever think that way, you're poised to enter into what Scripture calls dead works, and we'll define that. We'll get into that here in just a minute. You know, I just want to completely lift off any sense of legalistic expectation of you to have to do anything for acceptance with God. That's not to to alleviate the expectation of fruit. It's just we're, we're categorizing it properly to define what fruit actually is. It's a product of your relationship. It's a product of your connection. It's a product of you knowing your identity in Him. It's a product of you allowing Christ to live and thrive and transform you outwardly but to be free from dead works in the process. A lot of times people come to this knowledge and they start to wake up and they're like, well, I'm just free from works. Well, you're almost there. I get it. I I, I understand what you're trying to say, but let's just keep going. Let's just keep going. So this idea, uh, for he who has entered his rest, say rest. Rest. I'm going to spend the majority of today's message focused on what rest? 
What rest are we talking about? So we're going to read through a bunch of passages in Hebrews, and I'll probably go through that pretty fast. You can go back, but we're just going to pinpoint what rest? What rest are we actually talking about here? I'll give you the end from the beginning. The rest is essentially what it's like to be under the new covenant, what it's like to be a citizen of God's kingdom through Christ apart from law-keeping. Because the law was given for what? What was the law given for? To reveal sin, to show you you can't do it. Ultimately, you're going to need a Savior. That's what the law was given for. And if you break one, you're guilty of breaking them all. So there's just so much. Now, when you hear it explained simply and clearly, it's like, oh, yeah, of course. But the problem is in your day-to-day life, when you're working out life's issues, especially as they relate to your failures or situations that you find yourself in, that's where the mixture comes in. That's where it's like, well, maybe, maybe God's allowing this because I did this, and if I didn't do that, then he's got to do this. And it's like, no, you can just totally disengage from that way of thinking of trying to figure out God is playing chess with the circumstances of my life because here's the reality. He has given you all things that pertain unto life and godliness. He has blessed you with all blessings, all, all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. All of his promises are yes and amen. He in you is your wisdom, sanctification, justice, justification, and, redemp- and redemption. He is always leading you into life. He is always seeking to testify of the finished work of Christ in your life. He is always seeking to shape you into what Christ looks like. He is not playing chess with the circumstances of your life. If you find yourself in adverse situations and you learn a lesson about God in the midst of it, praise God for that, but don't confuse that with God playing chess with your life. Praise God that in an adverse, difficult situation, you had the wherewithal to keep your heart open to him and allow him to lead you through it and you learn and grow in the midst of that process. But don't ever think that God is creating adversity for that purpose. It's not how it works. It's just not how he does. You can't find anywhere in Scripture that that, that says that that's how God treats people. You've got a few instances with like Abraham and Moses and even with Jesus where uh, there was an option put to them. Those are people that God cut covenant with, and that's kind of a different conversation. But ultimately, the circumstances were still their choice, and it wasn't God doing. Now, and I'm not trying to smooth over in Scripture because God killed an entire planet except eight people. So I'm not trying to paint a big marshmallow up in the sky that never does anything that never executes justice. You know what I'm saying? I mean, there is a justice side of God, but that's covenantal responses to God. That's, that's different from the circumstances of your life. The, the, the justice of God is resolved in your life in the blood of Christ. A hundred percent final, done. God is good and only good. Well, then why doesn't it, why does it not work? That's a different conversation. But, it, you know, I was, I was having a conversation with somebody whose daughter has spina bifida, and he himself has diabetes. And I can't imagine what their every day, the steps that they have to go through. And I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to give them sympathy that he's not asking for. I'm just recognizing a situation. I, I can't identify with that. Um, you know, walk through some very difficult times with loved ones through disease and things like that. But a, but a lifetime 
of, of these types of things. I, I, you know, I, I don't know what that's like. But the conversation, you know, he asked, well, what do you, what do you think about healing? I'm like, oh, man. You feel unqualified to have the conversation in that moment because I have no idea what this guy's going through. And you don't want to be offensive. You don't want to be disrespectful to, to their, his lot in life, you know what I mean? And, and it, there's just some things you, I just, it, I, I, don't, I don't know how to relate to what you're describing to me, but I do know God. I do know what Scripture says, and I do know what Christ accomplished in his death, burial, and resurrection. And so, so at that point, you're just trying to relay what Christ accomplished in a way that is led by the Spirit for that moment. And I found myself describing healing in terms of, well, God's a good father. And any good father wants to provide every, every good opportunity that you can for your children. But it's up to your children to find their way into your wisdom and follow you into the blessing that they have for you. But how many of you know your children don't always do that? I liken God's promises to the same thing. They're, God's provided it. God wants it for us. And, and if we will follow him and, le- and engage his wisdom, engage his logic, apply the leading that he's giving us, we will make our way into his promises, the manifested promises that he has for us. It's not a legalistic thing like you have to give your way into the blessing, that you have to pray your way into it or perform your way or, or faith yourself up into it. or even, even the, you know, we talk a lot about the responsibility of persuading your heart to believe. You know, that can even become a dead work in terms of, well, I got to believe. Once I finally believe, then I'll have it. It's like, you know, God, God, as far as what God wants, let's just strip it down to that. What God wants, God wants you well. God's idea of life is in the garden before sin, perfection. In heaven, after everything's wrapped up, perfection. Jesus in the midst, God in the flesh, healing people, going about doing good, delivering people from uh, a judgment that they should, that they deserve because of their behavior. You know, the woman caught in adultery that should have been stoned legally. They could have thrown rocks at her until she died. And, and he, he could have legally stood by and watched it happen and, and not be complicit. However, the character of God is mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, is she getting away with it? No, she's just experiencing what her father wants for her, deliverance from her own destruction because of Christ. You know, sin certainly will bear its own fruit. Sin brings death. Does that make sense? You know, God's provided it. Follow him into it because he's not withholding it from you. I just, I'm trying to say it as simply as possible. So, gosh, we're still in the first one. I'm going <laughs> to kick it into another gear here. So let's uh, ceased. So there's a rest. Say rest. That, that, that's, that's kind of the target that we're looking at. Okay, so there's this rest. It has to do with ceasing from my own works. All right, let's, let's continue on. So Hebrews 6, 1, which um, my pastor mentor has a course called Foundations of Faith, which is excellent. And a couple of us are actually going to video it to have it locally here in our discipleship offerings. Uh, it's Jim Richards. 
and, and the foundations of the faith is based off of this particular passage. There's six foundations of the faith that Paul identifies here in Hebrews, or if he wrote Hebrews, he probably did. Therefore, the Hebrews 6, 1, therefore leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation. So there's foundations of the faith, foundation of repentance from dead works, which is what we're going to talk, we're going to finish out today focused on the idea of rest. Repentance from dead works, that's number one. Faith toward God, the doctrine of baptisms, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead. Now that, and that's not talking about the miracle of praying for someone and raising from the dead. That's talking about uh, basically what happens to a person at the end in their life, you know, because the Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection. So that's a whole thing. It's not talking about the miracle of healing someone that has died. It's talking about the, the eternal plight of a human uh, and eternal judgment. So this idea of repentance, verse, verse 1 there, repentance from dead works. Repentance means to have a change of mind. It, it means, it actually what it means is your mind is transformed to the degree that you actually start believing something else that has associated actions. It's like repentance is not like if we had an altar and we did kind of a typical calm down, come down to the altar and the volume of your weeping determines the degree of forgiveness that God disseminates that day. You ever, you ever been in environments like that? It's like, you know what I'm saying? It's like, you're going to go up and you're going to cry and you're going to convince God that you're sorry and then he's going to forgive you. That is, that's demonic. I mean, it just is. It's demonic. Repentance is not crying at an altar. Repentance is you wake up and you realize, oh my goodness, okay, yeah, no, that's not the right way. I'm going to change my mind to believe what God says to the degree that I actually live a different way now. That's what repentance is. It's not even necessarily apologizing to God. There is a sorrow because once you recognize you've not been living in accordance with God's way, you, you know, I can imagine, oh, yeah, oh, that, you know, there's a... But it's not your contrite heart that causes God to then release forgiveness for you. God's already forgiven you in Christ. It's your, it's your continual repentance. It's your continual changing of your mind to lay down the things that are in disagreement with God, to pick up and put on the new man that is in agreement with God, that mind of Christ that is already within you, to the point, to the point that it changes your, your behavior forward. That's what repentance is. So repentance from dead works, it does mean to stop them, but it also means change the way that you think about them. Repentance from dead works. So what is a dead work? This is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you guys, this is show and tell here for just a minute, so you can shout out your answer. Let's do it this way. Let's do it this way. What's a good work? What is a good work? Anybody just speak out. What's a good work? Praying for someone. Helping the poor. What's that? Visiting the widow. You said tithing? That what you said, tithing? Yeah. Any, any more? Loving on someone. Good works. Okay, now let me ask you this. What's a dead work? Doing it in your own I didn't say what's the motive. <laughs> what's the action? What is a dead work? 
Y'all are giving me motive. All of the above with the wrong motive. Y'all are, y'all are getting ahead of me. You're not playing right. No, but honestly, what is a dead work? A dead work is giving, praying for someone, visiting the poor, tithing. It's the same thing. There's no difference outwardly between dead works and good works. What's the difference? You guys have already nailed it. It's the motive. Why are you doing it? So if you are giving money with the expectation uh, that God is obligated to give you money back, compounded. <laughs> it's a dead work. Now, here's what's interesting, though. That one specifically is, is interesting because it gives you a confidence in your heart to actually expect to experience God as your provider. So even if you got the wrong motive, but it leaves you in a place where you're trusting God you're going to experience his nature. It's, it's deceptive. It's interesting. The, the freedom with which we have to follow God is very interesting. But prayer can be a dead work. You pray for somebody. Now, now let's get real here for just a minute. You ever prayed for somebody, but you don't really believe anything's going to happen? <laughs> or you kind of tell yourself in the moment, well, I know I'm supposed to pray here. That's what a Christian's supposed to do. Well, I don't really think nothing's going to happen. You, you see this guy, right, Jesus? I'm going to pray. Why, then why pray? It's a dead work. Or staying up all night long, having fasted for 72 hours, and praying so that God will move. Sounds holy, right? Sounds pious. Now, you could do that from the right motive. You could, and a lot of people do, I'm sure. I'm not, I'm not, again, that's the thing. You are not attacking the behavior. I'm not attacking anything, but I want us to look inward. Like, well, why do I do what I do? Am I trying to move God? Am I trying to get God to respond to me? Am I, am I actually just worrying all night long and calling it prayer? Why am I doing what I'm doing? i got to change my mind about what's going on in my heart, about why I do these things. And unfortunately, people engage this deconstruction process in their Christianity to the point that they dismantle everything that they were doing related to their faith, and they end up, and it's like, well, you know, they kind of gravitate maybe to this idea, well, you know, I'm acceptable to God either way, so nothing matters. You know, that, 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 that shows an improper understanding of the relationship. So good works versus dead works. And don't drive yourself crazy trying to judge your own heart. What I want you to do with this is alleviate the legalistic stuff that you feel like you've got to do to make God happy. Listen, God's happy with you if you're in Christ. I mean, I want to live in such a way where my behavior is so yielded to God that he, he's living through me and he sees it, and he smiles because he's pleased with that. Like, I mean, I, I want to live a life that's pleasing to him. <clears throat> but it doesn't necessarily drive my behavior. You know what I mean? It, it, it's not like I'm sitting here going, okay, what is it, what's the choice that I need to make that would please God? You know, that's like living with a narcissist. It's like living with a control freak. Don't raise your hand. 
but have you ever lived with a narcissist? Have, do you live currently with the control freak where you're <laughs> constantly thinking about, well, gosh, I got the eggshells. You know, are you with me? That's how people live with God. And, and it's constantly evaluating every little thing. Did I do enough? Did I not do enough? Is he happy? Is he pleased? Oh, maybe, oh, this happened, so maybe I need to do this. I get, I know, you know what? I learned this, this happened. I learned this lesson. So that's why God allowed it into my life. Let's keep going. Repentance from dead works. So let's go to Ephesians 2. 10. So quickly, Back to Hebrews 4.10. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his own works, as God did from his. So the goal is to cease from works, but then you jump down to Ephesians 2.10. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So the works that we must cease from, apparently, in Hebrews, are those dead works. The dead works, the things that we do to try to earn righteousness, or the evaluating of our failures, thinking that it affects our righteous, or draws us away from God, or makes us less holy, or makes us less justified, or less whatever, less anything that Jesus already paid for. You know, the, the, the reason I'm, I'm making such a fine point in this is because I want you to live free with the Lord. I want you to be free from fear. I want you to be free from guilt and shame and obligation. Now, if you continue in sin, you know, there should be this, this conviction within you. God will convict you of your righteousness, but he's already convicted that sin in Christ. There is no judgment. Now, that sin will bear fruit in your life unto death. You might lose your marriage. You might lose your job. You may end up in the grave early. I mean, you know, sin will have its effect. But I, I want you to just lift. I want you to be free. I want you, when, when you pray, I don't want you to be evaluating all of your external life trying to figure out where you did right, where you did wrong, what you're supposed to do, what you're not supposed to do. When you pray, I would love for you to just be able to sit face to face with your Father in heaven and just bask in his adoration of you and just appreciate him and know that he loves you. And there's nothing there. There's nothing there that causes you to draw back from him. Are you with me? Because it's possible. And then out of that, you then turn your heart toward him to be led and that wisdom to manifest in. And even, Lord, is there anything in my life that I need to deal with? Sometimes you close your eyes and you pray, and it's like, wah, wah, wah. it's obvious in your face, this red light flashing, because you have so much guilt and shame because of what you're doing. You can be free from that. You can be free from that. I'm telling you, you can experience such radical transformation by the grace of God that that thing that so easily makes you stumble and fall that you feel like you're never going to get rid of, 
You can be free from that. Why? Because Christ conquered it, and he lives in you. What's it going to take for you to believe that that's who you are in him, that you can live in that kind of freedom? It's true. It's just true. I want you free from this legalistic expression of life with God. So then we jump down into um, Romans 5.21, starting to get into what is this rest, and it's 11.30, and we have half the book of Hebrews to read. (laughs) Romans 5.21, that as sin has reigned unto death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is how you live. This is how you live. So we're talking about rest, right? We're talking about repentance from dead works, leaving, ceasing from our works. But what do I do now? This is what you do. You allow grace to reign through righteousness. So in other words, when you know who you are in Christ, when you know your right standing with the Father, there's an empowerment that will rise up within you to compel you and strengthen you over anything that causes you to stumble in this earth. It just is. You know, it's, it's like religion gets it backwards. It's like uh, you need to admit that you're not righteous to finally have power over this thing. It's like, no, you need to know that you're righteous. That gives you the power over it. When you believe that you are in right standing with God, you, you then align yourself to be strengthened. So if you're struggling... With anything, a destructive behavior, a sin pattern, a habit, negative thinking, acknowledge who you are in him, and in those moments, expect power to rise up in you stronger than the thing that you're struggling with. You do got to admit and own that you're struggling with it, but the way through it is to know that he who is in you is greater than that thing that you're struggling with, to yield to it. it it's counterintuitive. It's paradoxical because it's kind of like, oh, I just need to own I'm a dirty, worthless sinner, Lord. I hope you can please forgive me. Oh, I don't know. What... Well, you're never going to be free. If that's how you pray, you'll never be free. But if you stand and look in that thing's face, you know what? I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I am bold and strong. God loves me. God is giving me power and strength in this moment. I... Listen, the next time you're tempted, do that. I bet you've never done it. I just bet you've never done it. I bet you've never confessed your identity out loud, confidently, when you're tempted to sin. I bet you've never done that. Take authority over your own head. I mean, I'm in agreement with you. She knows. All right. Let's go through these quickly. Hebrews 4.1. Talk about this rest. Therefore... Because, it, because it's in Hebrews that he talks about this idea of ceasing from works. Hebrews 4.10, a little bit before that, Hebrews 4.1, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be deemed to have fallen short of it, for we also received the good news just as they did. Now, this section of Scripture is talking about the Israelites in the desert and why they didn't enter. You know, from Egypt into the promised land was about a two-week walk probably faster. They were there 40 years. Why? Because they tempted God. They limited the Holy One of Israel. This describes that. It says, now we who have believed, uh, let's see, 
Hebrews 4, 2. For we also have received the good news just as they did, the Israelites, but the message they heard, in other words, God's going to deliver you from Egypt and deliver you into the land of Canaan where you will reap of fields that you didn't plant, live in houses that you didn't build, build, and God will wipe out all of your enemies. Those are the kinds of things that they're holding on to. But the message they heard, in other words, the promises that God made to them, was of no value to them since they did not share the faith of those who comprehended it. So in other words, the old people had to die so that the young people could be free from the doubt and move into the promised land. That's just how it is. Verse 3, now we who, I'm not saying all the old people in here got to die so we can go. (laughs) (laughs) Now we who have believed, now we who have believed, now we who have believed, enter that rest. What rest? As for the others, it's just as God had said. So I swore in my anger they would not enter into my rest. And yet his works have been finished since the foundation of this world. For some, so that it's a rest from the works. It's a rest from the works. But there's more of a rest described. So, so what we're going to do the rest here is I'm going to run through some Hebrews so that it gives us some understanding of what that rest is. The rest that you can expect to enjoy as you cease from your dead works. For somewhere has spoken about the seventh day in this manner, and on the seventh day God rested from all his works. Again, he says in the passage above, they shall never enter my rest, since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those who, whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. The disobedience is uh, questioning God in their hearts. It describes that in a different place. It's not talking about the behavior. The behavior is a fruit of the belief in the heart. Verse 7 Again, he designated to a certain day, saying, David, today, after such is a long time, it has been said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. This is why you should stay out of sin, because it hardens your heart, which then affects your capacity to be led by God. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God, for he who has entered his rest has he himself has also ceased from his works as God did from him. Now, remember, you're created unto good works. We're not talking about doing good works. We're talking about trying to earn the quality of life that God is offering to us as a rest. That means you're struggling with anxiety. You're struggling with finances. You're struggling with relationships. You're struggling with peace and happiness. You're combating suicidal thoughts. You're mad at the world. You're a victim constantly. How do you break free from that? You rest. What do you rest in? Let's keep going. We'll get a picture of what you rest in. Hebrews 6, 11. Now, Hebrews is amazing. It's like one of my favorite books. There's a lot of storylines in Hebrews. There's so much doctrine in Hebrews. Hebrews is predominantly about the idea that under Christ, we are in this new covenant under a new priesthood. But there's so much good stuff in there. This particular through line that I'm sticking with is anchor points of what the rest is that God is offering to us. Now, as you hear these anchor points, you look at, think about your own life and think about, okay, yeah, that's a rest that I'm not experiencing. The way that you experience it is quit trying to experience it, quit asking God to give it to you because he already has in Christ. The way that you put on the rest and enter into the rest is to renew your mind, to repent from those dead works, 
and to trust that you're already in this. And what is it? So let, let's keep going. It's like, what is it? I wish you'd tell me. Read all of Hebrews. Uh, Hebrews 6.11, And we desire that each of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. So that's one anchor point. Hope. Say hope. hope. Verse 12, That you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Not effort, striving, tears, and worry. Say hope, hope. faith, faith. Patience. patience. Now, if you're struggling in any area, press the pause button, step back. Okay, where's the hope here? Where's the confident expectation of good? Well, am I in faith here? Am I, am I patient? You know what I mean? So these are anchor points of the environment of rest. You want rest? Hope, faith, patience. And you will inherit the promise. And don't be sluggish. You know, it's like work really hard to rest. <laughs> In other words, fight those thoughts and stuff that constantly bombard you that you're not enough because you are in Him. Push back anything that contradicts who you are in Christ. Verse 19, this hope we have is an anchor of the soul, but sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil. That, that really is the true rest. Entering that presence, which is the fact that that presence is in you. Experiencing that presence in you through hope, faith, patience. Hebrews 8.10, and it's all wrapped up in this new covenant, which is this, this, this everlasting covenant, this way of life that we are in with God in Christ. Hebrews 8.10, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their mind, write them on their hearts. In other words, no longer externally written in stone, written in scripture, written in scrolls, communicated verbally, it's in your heart and it's in your mind. In other words, I'm going to rewire them. I'm going to remake them so that it's natural for them to desire to obey me. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That was a new, that's a radical statement. That's a radical statement for people that didn't know about what life in Christ could be like. None of them shall teach his neighbor, and none of his brothers, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, say, I know him, for the, from the least to the greatest of them, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more. That is part of the rest. God is not remembering your sin. Now, what is he saying? What is he not saying? Some people will say, God doesn't even see my sin. He doesn't even see it when I sin. That's not what it's saying. He sees it. Oh, believe me, he sees it. And he doesn't like it. And it doesn't make him happy. And he's not just turning away. Are you done? He's not avoiding it. He sees it. But he's not remembering it. There's a difference. To remember means rehearse it in his mind. To continue to go over and over. He's not holding it against you. He sees it. But he's not holding it against you. Man. Man. Now, does that make you want to continue in sin? Not me. 
makes me want to preserve and protect and honor the freedom that I have in him. The fact I don't want to dishonor that graciousness that he's extending to me. I, I don't want to step on that, you know. Hebrews 9.11, but Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come. That's what hope is. It's an expectation of good things. With the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place, having obtained eternal redemption. You ever question your salvation? Look at the blood. Jesus ascended with his own blood to gain eternal redemption. Now, some of you, that issue is resolved. You don't ever worry about that. But a lot of people do. I'm telling you, a lot of people do. A lot of people are worried that they might not be saved. A lot of people are worried that their loved ones who have professed Christ aren't saved because they know them. Are you with me? Well, did they confess Christ? Yeah. But I don't know if they meant it because it should change their life. Well, Hebrews 10, 16. This is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, the Lord, I will put my law. And he, so he repeats himself here. I'll put my law in their hearts and in their minds. I will write them. Then he adds the sins and law, their sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now... Where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. You don't have, a lot of people present repentance as, an, as if it's an offering for sin. Well, I've sinned, now I've got to go to God and repent and tell him I'm sorry. And then he'll forgive me. Well, you, 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 you think Christ is, and it says this, do you think Christ is going to come down and die again? You think your tears and sorrow at the altar is going to cause God, Jesus to come down and die again so that God will forgive you again? No. You have, you have trampled underfoot the forgiveness that he gave you in Christ from the beginning. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to lose your salvation. But, but maybe when you go before the judgment seat of Christ in the end, there's some things to work out there that might not be so pleasant. You know, this is a kind of a sidebar. There is an aspect of the final judgment where all believers go before, everybody goes before God, the, the great white throne judgment, sheep and goats are separated, you being the sheep, there's also some experience of the judgment seat of Christ, which is for believers. That is not a judgment for righteousness to determine whether you're in or out. You're already in because of the blood. It's a judgment for a reward. And it does say your works will be judged. This is Second Thessalonians. Your works will be judged, and it says, you will suffer loss, yet you yourself will be saved. Your works will be judged to determine what kind of rewards you get. I don't understand all that, but it's in there. We can't not preach it. And in that moment, there is some loss. I perceive it as it's kind of like the final refining to get everything, all your mixed motives, all the junk out of you that you still kind of lumbered around with in this earth, and then you're just finally free from all that stuff. You know, people, people will say, uh, better watch your words, because every word, every word, every idle word you speak is going to be judged. Well, that, that might be true. That might actually be true. But not to determine if you're saved or not, but to determine a re the reward that you get in heaven. 
watch what you say. I mean, honestly, you know, I, I don't want to, I'm not trying to scare you. I don't want to make you question your salvation because it's in Christ alone. It's in the blood of Christ alone. But, the, but there is an aspect of, because the point that, that he's making here in Hebrews is that after you've been saved and you continue in sin, there's no more offering for sin. It's not like the priesthood where you just keep running down every year and you offer another sacrifice. You don't get to do that. It's Christ, that one-time sacrifice. Now, and afterward, if you continue in sin, there is a, there, the only thing that's left is an expectation of judgment, but not to determine whether you're saved or not, but for reward. That, if, you, if, you, if you do the exegesis of what he's... This, I'm getting technical, but if you go through and you align it with other doctrines that teach this particular point, it can't be for salvation... But there is this element of reward, works judge for reward. Okay, you with me? Do, do you appreciate that? I mean, I like to think about it. I mean, it's like, it doesn't, I don't want that to drive my behavior, but I want to be aware of it. You know, because if Hans does something stupid and I'm like, Hans, that, uh, I don't want to, I'm not going to speak that. No, he's amazing and awesome and doesn't do stupid things, but you know. 18, we're on 18. Now, where there is remission of sin, there is no longer an offering for sin. Therefore, brethren, having boldness, so again, rest. We're talking about rest. What does rest look like? If you're not experiencing these things, push away anything that contradicts it so that you can experience this rest that is offered, this rest that God says, there is a rest that remains. This is part of that rest. Therefore, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, a new and living way, which he has consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. That's part of your rest. You can draw near to God with a true heart in full assurance. In other words, confident. You can go to God confidently that you belong there. You come walking in that throne room like, this is my house. Why? Because... You've uh, heart's been sprinkled from an evil conscience and your body has been washed with pure water. Hold fast the confession of your hope without right wavering for he who promises faithful. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Repent from dead works created unto good works. Works are a fruit of resting. The most beautiful good works you will perform are out of this rest that you have in him, Hebrews 12, 28. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom, that's rest. You are receiving a kingdom. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken. Do you have some areas of your life that feel shaken? Do you have some areas of your life where it's like, man, I don't, there, nothing is stable. Nothing is stable here. Well, what's it going to take for you to renew your mind, to realize, no, in God's kingdom, there's this kingdom that I've been given, that I'm receiving, even in this moment, that can't be shaken. So what is it that I need to put off in my mind? Even, my, even in my behavior, maybe, I need to walk away from this. I need to not listen to that. I need to not think this. I need to push it away until I, kingdom, kingdom. Oh, there's, there's the rest. Yes, in Christ. Okay, now that's bringing me hope. Yes, now in that I am accepted. Now in that I have hope. In that I am pure. 
And I, you know what I'm, you, you, you find your way through. You're already in the kingdom, but you got to deal with the, this and the, and the emotions to get them out of the way, to, to, to experience the rest that you actually already have. Therefore we, therefore, we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken. Let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably, reverence and godly fear. Let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. I mean, let's make that our prayer. I, th I think I saw Chris. Chris, come on up if you would. You can turn on his guitar. We'll just... Let's just kind of meditate in this a little bit as we close and we pray this. You can stand up on your feet if you would. You can leave Hebrews 28, uh, uh, 12, 28 up there. And just, just, just make this your prayer for just another couple of minutes, a minute or two as we close out. And you're thinking about this rest that you have, right? Are you thankful for the rest that you have in Christ? Yes. I mean, did it kind of expand about what you can expect to experience in him? life in Christ, this rest that is available to you, that, that is greater than anything that you're experiencing right now, it's the way to have victory in life, is to enter into His rest. But the reality is, it's already available. It's, you're already in it. You're just not allowing yourself experience, ex, to experience it. But let's make this the commitment of our heart. So let's just, this is a meditation of passage here for us. Therefore, and, and you don't have to read it, but just read it inwardly silently think about what it looks like or receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken I'm going to let grace live inside of me I'm going to serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear just think about that because I'm in his kingdom I have inherited God's kingdom I am a joint heir with Jesus it is his good pleasure to give me his kingdom he has gone ahead of me to prepare a place for me. That is his kingdom. He said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He said, the kingdom is within. Just think about that. The kingdom of heaven is within me. It doesn't come with outward observation. We don't have to ask who's going to go down and get it or go up and bring it down. The kingdom of heaven is within. And out of his kingdom, grace springs forth that wellspring of life that that river of living water out of his kingdom within me that river of life that comes from the throne of God is in me strengthening me giving me rest giving me wisdom touching every facet of my life so that I may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Jesus, be glorified. Jesus, be glorified. Father, we thank you. We yield to you, Holy Spirit. And just, just pray to him. Just pray. Just tell him, just out of what you've heard today, something that stands out to you, just speak out to him. Father, I thank you. I thank you that mercy triumphs over judgment. I thank you that there's all this giant description of rest that I can expect confidently to experience. And I am committed to serving you out of grace to reverently and acceptably serve you. 
and serving you is to love other people. Father, I open my heart to be led by you in this moment, to be your light and salt in this earth because the world is starving for love, starving for an encounter with you. And I choose to yield to your kingdom in me to be empowered by your grace, to serve you acceptably, reverently, in fear, in reverent worship of you, loving others, helping them understand who you truly are. Father, we just speak life over this body, over this congregation. Thank you that we get to gather. Father, I thank you that you're drawing people in. I thank you that you're showing us right now who we can go and speak to and, and invite them in so that they can be encouraged and healed and strengthened and lifted up in this place so they can learn who they are in Christ. Father, we just we thank you that the, the tent pegs are increasing and expanding. We want to make room to be a blessing to the people that you would draw into this place. Unless the Lord build the house, those that labor, labor in vain. We don't want to engage in dead works to draw people but we want to engage in good works, spreading the good news of your kingdom. Father, I speak life over every person in this place. I thank you that uh, you, you are giving us wisdom in our finances. You're giving us wisdom in our relationships. You're giving us wisdom toward our children, toward our jobs, toward how to, how to conduct ourselves in this community. Father, I thank you that we are yielded to you, fully influenced by you. Thank you that your generosity is springing up inside of us. No limits, no limits at all. We take all the limits off of you, Father, to experience you graciously as our provider, to experience you as the giver of wisdom, as the healer in our lives, as the strengthener of our hearts. Thank you. Just thank you for the rest. I thank you for this rest that you've given me in Christ this rest that you've given me in Christ.